So we now welcome on Power of the Purell, the quarantine version of Power of the Towel. It's Randy Janda of Sportsnet 650. How's it going, man? I'm doing well, Nick. How are you? I'm I'm doing as well, I think, as as I can be. Now, my first qu- now, my first thing is when I'm going to promote this episode, I am deathly afraid of your name being autocorrected to random on my phone. I'm just like that's like my number one thing. Like af- after this is done, I'm like, I'm, I'm, this is gonna, like it's going to autocorrect to random for some reason. Hey, you know, you wouldn't be the first one. Um, we try to make a stick about it on the show now that the promised newspaper uh, did that once and, and it went to print as random. Oh man! Just remember. Just remember, you wouldn't be the first one, so uh, my name has been butchered in many ways, but Randy Janda is the name, Random Janda is, uh, I've been referred to that many times. Yeah, that's that could be your alter ego online, Random Janda. Yeah. We have a segment on Reach every single day, I give you a random fact, you just kind of launched off of that, that messed up from the province, so why not, right? It's, uh, it's, uh, they, they screwed it up, I decided to run with it. Yeah, sometimes you got to roll with these things, man. So the the big news for the Vancouver Canucks this week, and thankfully it happened during this time when there's not much going on, is the whole Judd Brackett saga. What I'm just going to ask you straight off, like, what's your initial, what's your impression of this whole Judd Brackett situation? It's such an interesting conversation because I can guarantee you no other team in the league, you know, it wouldn't be a huge possibility. It might be substantial in Montreal and Toronto, but Vancouver... So to the credit of Jeff Rocket, you know, he's done an amazing job. And when you have talented people, you want to keep them. And especially with the success with, you know, with Pedersen and the college ranks mm-hmm. that got that, when you go back to, you know, Tyler Madden, you leverage him to get Tyler to Foley, and now what's going on with Aiden Jonah, among others, you know, you've built up such a resume that it's, it's so important that, you know, you want to keep them. But at the same time, when you, you breathe, Success. That's also going to be a, I think, a scenario where within a, and I'm not even talking about hospital, within any sort of business, you're building yourself up and there's a, there's a meteoric rise. It's just been so bizarre to see it play out in the media and amongst the fan base. So, so for this reason, I, I'm kind of, you know, Sam Shaw on Sportsnet 650 has been coming up with updates as well. I know Patrick Johnson has done a great job of that as well. And to have, you know, this sort of thing play out in the media has been so strange because at one time, you know, you, at one point you can understand why Jeff Rackett is thought so high that mm-hmm. he's done a good job. But at the same time, good people and good organizations, you know, there are these conversations that eventually they may move on. And that's why I find that the vitriol and kind of the, the you know, the negativity towards uh, the management team, which uh, I find it kind of shocking. Because, you know, listen, I understand the back, you know, the, the background dealings might be interesting and there's certain relationships that, that uh, are, are interesting to mm-hmm. see. Uh, but I still, you know, other, other markets, you wouldn't necessarily see um, so much so much attention paid to it. And I gotta say, uh, even because, you know, the LA King News, you know, with their, like, Pluto, their AGM, who's had a, a role in their draft, uh, a lot of organizations, you have to say, potentially say goodbye to, to people, and I, I get the love from Jeff Rackham. I, I am legitimately surprised that it took on this much of, uh, of attention of, of the internet and of Canucks fans. I'm kind of impressed, but I'm also at the same time kind of surprised. I'm not going to lie. 
Well, I think it's a combination of, first of all, we're in the middle of a quarantine. There's not really much else to talk about. But that's not to say that the Judd Brackett news isn't significant news. I think it is significant news. But I can't think of another NHL market where this whole saga of the director of amateur scouting, not, not the general manager, not the head coach, but the director of amateur scouting, this whole saga is played out in public. Like there's probably, like you said, there's probably organizations who have these conversations like this, but it's behind closed doors and it doesn't necessarily get leaked to like to the media. But this is all playing out in public, which is fascinating to me. And that's the, the crazy part here is that I think you know disagreements, whether it's this position or another position in the organization, those happen all the time. Those are happening. You know, there's a, probably a bunch of other organizations in the NHL right now, whether a scout or a director of scouting contract is up and they have to figure out what goes on, whether, you know, an individual wants a greater role in the organization or wants more autonomy, but you don't have it come out like this as often. And it's weird because, you know, covering the team, as we all do, there's positivity around this connect organization, right? Mm-hmm. In the dark days of the post sedine era and a couple of years of, even with the Sedine, where the team wasn't doing well, and all of a sudden you turn a corner, there's positivity, and based on points percentage right now, the Canucks are in it. They're in the playoffs. And to have kind of this, this dark cloud kind of come over during the pause, it, it is, it, the timing is weird. But listen, the GMs have a job for a reason. They steer the ship. And this is Jim Benning's authority in the sense that whether Jeff Rackett's in the fold or not, that's a part of the authority. And so, you know, a lot of fans and, and people that cover the game may not like the fact that maybe next year Jeff Rackett's not involved. But under the jurisdiction of the GM, this is a this is a call that Jim Benning is able to make. According to Jim, you know, he's trying to keep Jeff Rackett as part of the fold based on, you know, some of the other reports he's heard about the offers that were put forward to Jeff Rackett. Uh, those that say otherwise. Yeah. But I, I guess we've got a couple of, you know, maybe a couple of months here of yeah, exactly. And I, I, I brought this up in kind of my opening ramble for the podcast, but I like I'm interested to see. Like, it sounds like to me, Judd Brackett's gone. I don't think he's going to come back. I think it's more than more. You can't offer him a certain amount of money. I think he's gone. But I'm interested to see if Jim Benning, John, John Weisrod, they seem to be the duo who want to run the show. I'm interested to see what the happens to the amateur scouting department because. We all know about Canucks pro scouting, and for the first, you know, five years of the Benning regime, it was pretty bad. Like you make terrible trades for objectively terrible trades for guys like Eric Branson and Brandon Sutter, and you bring in all these guys, and the pro scouting wasn't good. But eventually, turned around. Like the Tanner, starting with the Tanner Pearson trade. Tanner Pearson trade was good. JT Miller trade has worked out awesome, and even the Tyler Foley trade, even a small sample size. I mean, we can't blame Jim Benning for not seeing COVID-19 pandemic pan out. But eventually, the pro-scouting department turned around. And, I, you know, it's very possible that the amateur scouting department can turn around. But do we have, do we have as fans, as organize, fans of the organization, for myself personally, five years to wait for the amateur scouting department to turn around under Jim Benning? I don't think so. So, in my opinion, it, it's clear Judd Brackett has a skill for finding guys in the late round, especially out of the U.S., you know you can you can argue whether the Canucks will be better or worse out of it, but it's just to me, I think a good organization 
would keep just keep him around. Not only even if you don't want to listen to your, his opinion, just keep him around so other teams can't have him. This is a, an interesting time for scouting because you're right in the sense that you know you want to keep as many people in the fold as you possibly can. That's what a good organization. Absolutely, yeah. But at the same time, um, when there's philosophical differences and authority lays with one individual, which it does with Jim Benning, um, you know that is a decision that that individual can make. So managing the situation is one thing, and keeping as many people in the fold. But if there's philosophical differences on what a position means and what the jurisdiction will be like that cuts to the core. Mm. You can work, you can work in a lot of you know teams and not like each other or not like the way it's going. But if you have a legit problem with, hey, this is what I should be doing and this is my role, I think you know certain things we can work with. I don't know if that's one of them, but even beyond the Canucks, going forward here though, scouting departments in the NHL, not only the Vancouver Canucks, but scouting departments across the NHL, they're in a pretty weird spot right now. I want to get back to the whole uh, the whole quarantine thing after because I know you had Chris Johnson on your show earlier, but I think uh, friend of the show Sean Warren, the Area Fifty One podcast, made a good point on his show where I think the large debate of this Judd Bracket, you know, debate comes from people identifying themselves with styles of management, past management styles of the team. I mean, there's a lot of people who like Mike Gillis because he had a new school. I'm on, I don't want to say analytical, but a new school approach to management where he lets people do their thing and values their opinion and lets them, you know, be autonomous, like you said. Whereas Jim Benning, I feel, is very much of, you know, the old school type of hockey management where you have a small group and you trust those people completely. And in his case, his group is, excuse me, John Weisrock. He That seems to be his guy. Well, I think what also matters here is that when you talk about scouting, what is Jim Benning known for? It's scouting, right? That's that. Now, yeah, that was his thing coming up. Looking back at his age that's where he, he kind of earned his, his key point against the NHL and eventually trending towards an AGM role and now a general manager. So I think you're right in terms of Mike Gillis and his delegating is you know, his macro-managing rather than micro-managing. We've seen and heard a lot of that, about that with Mike Gillis willing to explore any things and opening up the room to everybody. There are different management styles, no question, but I also wonder if, you know, Jim Benning is a scout. Scouting is in his blood. His you know, dad was a scout, one of the legendary scouts out of the East as well. So it's not only about maybe leadership style, but when you're looking at specific players and you have a philosophy of how scouting organizations should be run, I think this cuts to the core with Jim Benning because of his history, right? So delegating is, is a real, you know, 
interesting way of looking at it as well because you know there are different management styles. It goes for whether it's hockey teams or even just you know whatever job you may be doing. You feel any employee wants to feel like they're involved. It's an inclusive space. They can speak their mind, and they won't get lit up for it. They won't be you know looked at and said you know I can't believe you spoke your mind, and your your boss is going to look down on you for it or feel like they've attacked that. But with hockey operations, because that new school and the old school, you know, there's a lot of old school teams that end up winning the cup, right? Oh, yeah. The pretty old school regime that they got there. Uh, you know, you've got looking at Pittsburgh. They won the cup a couple of times in the last few years. That's a pretty old school regime, too. So which one is right? Which one is wrong? I don't know. Like, you do have two, you know, in a lot of ways, two ways of thinking here that, that I think on paper, the Mike Gillis approach, absolutely everybody wants to feel involved. Yeah, exactly. And I don't know about you, but like this whole Judd Brackett situation is like Canucks Game of Thrones. Like the drama surrounding this this this, this team right now is unbelievable. You know, you ever watch Game of Thrones? Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. The def- question I have though is, you know, is this pre Red Wedding or is the Red Wedding still to come? Well, the Red Wedding is about to happen with Judd Brackett. That that that's that's the big that's the big uh, climax of of season three where we're in right now. We're in, we're in a deep. So you had sorry, you had Chris Johnston on your program today. When's hockey coming back? That's like I'm I'm I've held out for this long, but I need to have like at least some sort of date to know to anchor myself. When's hockey coming back? Well, I think one thing we can be I would say certain, but most optimistic is the 2020 2021 season, probably December. Now, what happens before that is the big question, right? Mm. The whole the whole thing of having a draft in June before the playoffs seems just just entirely really stupid to me. Like I get you want ratings, but to have it before the playoffs just seems ridiculous. And I get it we're in like unprecedented times, but still. Yeah, you can understand the logistics of it. The NHL needs money. They want people to talk about their game. The scope contracts are up at the end of June. But yeah, you can't, as far as I'm concerned, have it before you resume the season again. Player transactions are, I would argue. As important as as itself, right? You've got fans wanting to see who's traded, fans looking at the cap situation, teams trying to figure out their cap situation, how they can shed salaries. Look at the Vancouver Canucks, for instance. You have to make a decision on Jake Bertanen and Troy Stetcher. Do you sign them? What is that number? Or if you don't sign them, or if you don't want to sign one of those guys, this is a way that the Vancouver Canucks potentially could recoup some draft picks and use in the 2020 draft. Now imagine an early June draft when you can't do that. Yeah. It messes up your cap structure. It messes up your opportunity to trade one of these potential players if you don't want them back in Vancouver, if they don't have a future in Vancouver. And that's where an issue, it's an issue not only for fans, because yeah, we want the drama. We want to see J.C. Miller at that sort of trade. We want to be a P.K. Subban type of trade. But from a team point of view, if you can't even, if you don't even know what the cap is for next year, you know, you've got to navigate that. And you've got, how can you even consider signing guys like Stetcher or Tennant when there's so much uncertainty with the cap? And I would, you know, if I'm a GM that wants to potentially look at an upgraded free agency, and you want to flip that player, 
now. It's, it's not a it's not a great situation to have that that draft. But I can totally understand why hockey people are saying, yeah, that's not for me because as a fan, I don't want to see that either. But beyond that, you know, when hockey's coming back, here's the conundrum for the NHL next is that if you let you know hockey come back and you go straight to the playoffs, you've got yeah, which is kind of one of the options that's out there. So you can I think it's the only option. I don't see them fitting in the 12 regular season games or whatever before playoffs. And for a lot of players, why would you play those games? Especially if you're on a salary dweller. It makes no sense, right? You don't want to get injured. Mm-hmm. If I'm a guy, why don't, you know, what's my motivation, especially on those teams? But even beyond that, if you go straight to the playoffs and they want to include a lot of teams as we've heard the number 24, which I kind of cringe at. My doomsday scenario, my worst case scenario would be the Montreal Canadiens or the Chicago Blackhawks end up winning the cup based after that because they made the playoffs. Like, if you are the NHL, an integrity point of view, that's a, that's a terrible scenario. So, the date is important, but also the structure and the format where eight, six to 18 coming into the playoffs rather than, you know, eight on each side, have 16. 24, I understand you want to involve as many markets and make money, but there's some damage that could be done with that as well, because if a team like Montreal ends up winning the Cup, legitimately, they shouldn't even be in the playoffs. So, it's that fine line of how do you make back your money if you're the NHL, but at the same time, you know, don't damage the reputation of the league, because if a team like that ends up winning, me and you will probably look back at this and say, that was a weird, weird waste of time. Well, you know, I'm, I'm a, I think of a bit of an opposite opinion where I'm for team chaos in this scenario. I want the weird, I want the weirdest scenario for the Stanley Cup Finals possible because it doesn't matter what the scenario is. There's going to have a giant asterisk next to it, right? No one's going to consider this a legitimate Stanley Cup. At least I'm not, unless of course the Vancouver Canucks win it somehow, and then it's 100% legitimate. <laughs> but and I, if any other team wins it, like it's a it's an asterisk. It's it's not a real Stanley Cup playoff. So I'm of the opinion, hey. Do, do something weird. Like, have a 2014 playoff. Have a single elimination first round. Just do something weird because at the end of the day, it's going to have a giant asterisk next to it. It's going to be that one year the coronavirus messed up the Stanley Cup, final, Stanley Cup Finals. So I differ on that in the sense that I think we've played enough games where you do have that 70-game range to figure out, okay, we have a decent enough sample size of who the best team to be in each conference are. I would rather have that number. Like, the chaos scenario to me, I'm out on it, but we'll, we'll see. This is the conundrum that Gary Bettman has in front of him right now. It's like, how do you do something that half of the fans of your league are going to be like, okay, this is good, and this is legit. Others are going to say, no, you know, get crazy with it, right? I can guarantee you one thing. The league is going to be ripped for whatever reaction or, you know, with their reaction, fans' reaction, whatever they do. But if the NHL does come back to the season, because I legitimately think we get to the NHL, we're going to have to see how this all plays out in the next couple of weeks. It's going to be like, okay, the league has all the options in front of them. Finish out the season, you can go straight to the playoffs, bring in 24 teams. How do you make money, but at the same time, how do you make sure that you have a scenario where people respect that decision and where they say, okay, this is a, a legit top winner, whoever is at the end. Because to me, that's going to be a big issue for Gary Beckman is you don't want to be like, oh yeah, remember that year where the Columbus Blue Jackets came out of nowhere and won the cup? <laughs> yeah. And listen, that could be for you. That could be something. Um, but you don't want to totally randomize, right? No, I think anyway. 
Yeah, like, hey, I want sports back, so I, I can I can gamble on them. To be honest, like, I miss I miss gambling on sports, and a chaos scenario for the Stanley Cup playoffs would be awesome. Just think of just think about the uproar of like a single elimination game in the first round. Like you said, if like Montreal beats a high seed, the absolute like the meltdown online would, be, would just be awesome to witness. It, it could be, and you know, with that, just imagine if you are one of the yeah. Like I'm, I'm thinking right now of a team like Tampa Bay or a uh, you know Western, you know Washington or uh, you know. Hey man, tough break. You shouldn't have been a good team this year. Life's not fair, man. I don't know what to tell you. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's going to be. Like, as a fan, I don't necessarily want to be that one-gamer. I'd like to be at least three games, but then again, beats their own, right? Let's be. Yeah, hey, March Madness-style tournament, a March Madness-style Stanley Cup playoffs. Single elimination all through. You can get it done in, like, two weeks. You know what the crazy thing about this is, though? As much as that, I don't like it, if it comes down to that, if there's only enough time in the lead-up to the next season where you can have a one-gamer, knockout style, you can even throw as many games as you want in there, we would all watch it because some hockey is better than no hockey, right? And, and that's where I will kind of like stick my heels in and say, no, I don't want to see that. But if we get to that point and it's July or August and that's the only option left, I'm probably going to watch it. Yeah, I think that's, that's what the NHL is counting on is people just being so desperate. Whatever they throw out there, people are going to watch. Yeah, and I think the biggest aspect of that will be can you get the players to buy in? The players are going to make their millions, no question, but, you know, talking to folks like Dale Leach and a few others on our show, these are guys that are playing for contracts next year, and if they go into a, a camp and get hurt, that turnaround time is, is really tough for high end athletes to, to all of a sudden go cold, you know, into, into real life games. So, you know, I think the fans will buy in. I'm curious to hear about the PA because some of them, you know, some of them, especially the veteran players, are saying, wait a sec, guys, like, let's look ahead to next year rather than risk injury this year when it might not mean that much, especially for guys that haven't played uh, in a while and are on really not very good teams, right? So, mm-hmm. so I think the fans will buy in. The players are the ones that I'm, I'm curious to hear more from. Well, uh, yeah, and I've said on this podcast before, the whole idea of putting these players under quarantine under in a hotel room and just getting, forcing them to go to a rank and then go back and stay in a hotel room. Like, is it, like if I was a player, I wouldn't sign up for that. Like, just to be away from your family of two months in a global pandemic and all you can do is hang around a hotel room? Like, doesn't sound fun or really worth it. No, and legitimately, I know there's, you know, conversations about, oh, they're paid millions of dollars. They, they should, well, fact of the matter, it doesn't matter if you've got a couple extra zeros on the, you know, on the end of your paycheck. This is the leverage that they have as employees. They can, as employees, say, hey, this doesn't jive with a segment of our PA or it does. So, you know, I hear those arguments of, okay, these guys are paid millions of dollars. They should just shut up and play. No, these are legit working condition issues. And I think that's where down the road, you know, if they do come back and play in the next couple couple of months here, health concerns are going to be important. Staying away from your family is going to be important and top of mind for a lot of these guys. And how do you keep it completely safe for them? Because that matters. If there's a case, a positive test somewhere, how does the league respond? These are all these questions that, you know, going back to your original question of when does hockey come back? Those are the things that complicate it. So as much as I want to answer, I'm, I'm still looking ahead to next year to say, you know, this November, December is 
is the one surefire you can probably for and say, okay, that makes sense. But this year, that's the big elf in the room. Nobody knows how to answer that question. Mm-hmm. All right, let's, let's move on to some questions that make me feel like we're in the middle of the playoffs or like hockey is irregular, is regularly back. You mentioned free. Yes, real ho- yeah, well, yeah, real hockey question. So you mentioned earlier about free agents like Jake Vertanen, Troy Stetcher. Uh, who would you prioritize next, going into next season from the Canucks free agency? I think Jacob Markstrom, in my opinion, is like one A, number one. But who else would you try and prioritize out of that list of RFAs, UFAs? I'm with you on the Jacob Markstrom thing. I think that's the obvious one. The guy. You know, field eight games for you in the season and lead the league. The league in that, that's the guy you should be prioritizing. But beyond that, I think you have to look at that first line again with, I know the sample size isn't there, but if you can get Tyler to fully done on a deal and you can convince them to stay in Vancouver, whether it's in the short term or long term, if you can find the money, and that's the key here, if, if you can find the money, that's the guy I'm looking at because the production that he had, even, you know, in that short time frame, when he's playing with skilled players on a team that is aggressive offensively, he can still put up points. And in LA, you you know, playing with a team that was trending downwards, it kind of reminded us of the Vancouver Canucks a few years ago, where it seemed like every player was having a terrible season because the team was unable to get the puck out of its zone. That's kind of what the LA Kings were. They had great shot metrics, but high quality, high danger chances, they weren't really there. And I agree with you completely, and the thing with Chris Tanev, and I think I said this last week when I had Dick Nazar on, is 
Chris Tanev, the issue is he needs to take like a super team friendly deal, like not only a very short term, but also very small AAV. And the other thing you mentioned, Quinn Hughes. Well, is Chris Tanev helping Quinn Hughes or is Quinn Hughes propping him up? That's the issue I have with Tanev. I don't think I can see him any way he comes back unless he tells Jim Benning, hey, I really want to stay here and I will take any deal you put in front of me. Well, one thing I think we're going to have to see whenever free agency starts is that you know, this is the year for the one-year deal, right? Because if you're testing free agency this year, we don't know what's going to happen with the cap. So if you're a Chris Penn, if you're a Tyler Zapoli, you say, hey, let's kick the can down the road. Let's take a sweetheart deal here in Vancouver where you're able to play on a contending team, but at the same time, hope that next year the cap situation is a lot better, and then you make your money on that contract, right? Yeah. And the Quinn Hughes argument, whether Hughes is propping him up, is that's a valid question. One thing that Quinn Hughes is definitely doing is keeping Chris Tanev healthy. With the puck left on his own end, Chris Tanev is not having to eat those shots, not having to eat those hits in, in the corners that he was getting drilled in the last couple of years. And that's why he was getting injured. So whether, you know, Hughes is propping up Tanev, we know for a fact he's keeping him healthier, and, and that's important. But I would say those short-term deals across the NHL, you know, we've seen depth guys get longer-term deals, but if you're a high-end player who can command a decent AAV, this is up a year to, to hit free agency. And I'm not talking about the Taylor Hall of the world. Somebody's going to get Taylor Hall a lot of money, and that doesn't matter. He's going to probably get a long-term deal. But if you're that second tier of a really good player, or, you know, that second tier defenseman, kind of like a Chris Tanner, are you getting that same money that you would get in a normal year? And I would, I would argue, no, you're not. So there is a benefit for the Canucks in this. If they can make that cap room, do something with the Louis Erickson contract, give yourself some more wiggle room, make some more room, uh, potentially through, if you're looking at one of those RFAs that we mentioned, if not both, you might have to potentially move and get recoup uh, some, some cap space there, but also recoup some draft picks. That's how you can maybe potentially make some wiggle room for all of those guys. But I think in the short term, this is actually a team-friendly market, potentially, where you might be able to offer one to deal. The problem will be every team, every contender is going to be thinking that way. So the Canucks will have to, have to you know, prove to guys that they are more worthy of getting a one-year deal with one of these players than the Washington Capitals, the Toronto Maple Leafs, you know, other teams in the Western Conference that are, are you know, really good and, and trending in that direction. So... It's going to be a bidding war for sure, but I think the Vancouver Canucks with what they have in Hughes and Pedersen, they're near the top of the line. There's a lot of optimism when it comes to the Canucks. And in the last two years, where there was players like Tyler Myers, Tyler Toffoli, J.T. Miller, there's optimism in Vancouver when it comes to free agency and trade. You couldn't say that two years ago. You couldn't say that three years ago. Hmm, I, yeah, and that's the first of all, that's a good point about Quinn Hughes. I think they should give Quinn Hughes some sort of medical degree. For keeping Chris Tanev healthy the entire year. That's a good point about like. I think yeah, I think about that's uh, Neil Patrick Harris. I never watched the show. I've I've heard of his existence though, right? Yeah, basically, uh, basically, what Yeah, exactly, and yeah, and hey, I still remember the day Louis Erickson signed with the Canucks for agency 2016. People are already talking about like. When's he, when's he going to get bought out? I haven't seen a deal like that necessarily with the Canucks right after it's been signed in free agency since. It's such a weird 
know, there was that little bit of optimism. Little bit. It was a kernel. It was a kernel of optimism. It's just a little bit, but you know, that first game when he scores in his own net, it just never looked like there was any optimism after that. Training camp, it felt good, and there's a lot of people saying, okay, it was the team still drive, but it was kind of a sad omen right off the start when he when he ended up getting that, you know, own goal. And as you can see, the puck slowly gliding into that net. It was, it was kind of a bad omen, but I think this is a huge summer for Louis Erickson as well because the Vancouver Canucks, you know, they kind of made it happen. Yeah, this great renaissance where, you know, the insurance line and getting the empty net goal, he kind of had his moment in the sun, but we know next year, in order for the Vancouver Canucks to be competitive and do like cap space effectively, and especially with the current situation, they're going to have to do something now. The league may be able to help out. Because with the cap situation, are there going to be compliance bias? And if there is one provided to, to every single team, maybe that's a way to get some some relief. And not only the Canucks, but other teams will get that as well. But we don't know. And late, most recently, you know, Chris Johnson, we've had him on the show a couple of weeks ago as well as we do every weekend. And Chris doesn't necessarily believe compliance bias are on the way. So if that's not the case, how do you how do you force a move to Louis Erickson? Because you can't justify that deal yeah. anymore, right? No way. At the beginning of the year older, at the beginning of next year, you have to have some clarity on whether it's sending him to Utica, forcing him there, or having some sort of agreement with him where, you know, it's an Alex Bermuda type of case, and you just void the contract, which you've got to essentially force him to the AHL. And, and that, to me, that is the biggest, you know, we talked about prioritizing free agents. Mm-hmm. So Louis Erickson, what happens on that, and the dilemma there, that's the biggest question mark for the Vancouver Canucks. Your free agents and your RFA issues are, you know, are greatly helped out if you can find a solution there. So, Jim Benning, you've got to put it on thinking time. I'm sure he's been thinking about this for the last couple of years, but it seems like this summer is going to be the summer where they have to get something done. Mm-hmm. And that, that's a good segue into, into my next question about Jim Benning and just contending, this team contending. How long do you think it should take Jim Benning from here on out to build a Stanley Cup contender, you know, a team kind of like maybe the Washington Capitals where you don't know if they're going to win every year, but they're at least going to make noise in the playoffs. Like how long do you think it should take Jim Benning from this point out to build that type of team? Because it seems like the building blocks are there with Lewis Patterson and Quinn Hughes. Like two, you can say in back-to-back drafts, the Canucks, the Canucks got the best player in the draft, at least in the first round. But it's all those other pieces around that maybe Jim Bennings struggled a bit with. So how long do you think it takes the Canucks to become that sort of playoff contender if they can get there? They do definitely have the foundation, right? Elias Pedersen, Quinn Hughes, and those are... The yeah, the building blocks are there. There's no doubt about it. Franchise players, right? You need a franchise center, you need a franchise defense. The big question with this team, as far as I'm concerned, though, is looking ahead is can you build out the rest of your roster where you don't rely on a Jacob Markstrom to be your best player in a season? Mm-hmm. And that's important because all the best teams in the league don't necessarily put that much bonus on their goalies to steal games. And this year it was required because you've got a young team, you know, you've got a young superstar, Clinton and Patterson kind of figuring themselves out still, and they've taken steps. Patterson as well, maybe showing what he can do. But they're still heavily reliant on a Jacob Markstrom. I think to build up that rest of that roster, to have 
a second line that is consistently cranking out points to having third and fourth lines that are eventually, yes, having a shutdown line and a center that can really focus on the other team is important, but, you know, Elias Pedersen has also shown that he can play that role in certain games. Mm-hmm. You need Bill Horvath to be more consistent in that regard, but this team's trending towards getting a slightly more offensive third line, which they showed this year, and having a fourth line that can chip in, I would say, in order to be a, a, a proper cup contender on a year in, year out, I'm still looking at a couple of years because next two years, where you're basically saying next year, you're building upon that, you've got some older players whose contracts have to come off the books, that's Brandon Sutter, eventually Jay Beagle as well. But how do you get that bottom six to be quicker, faster, and point producing? That to me is the difference of having a team that is relying on your stars, like Henderson and Quinn Hughes, to a team that is a little bit more balanced, and when teams are playing, you you have to be in a position where you give them a dilemma. They have to pick their poison, and right now the Canucks aren't in that spot where they're best players. There's a couple of them, and you could kind of zero in on them, and we saw that with Elias Pettersson in the second half of the year. I think the Canucks are still a couple of years away. That depth, they have to build that up. They have to get that through you know, free agency and some of these younger players, whether it's Neil Koblander, the Philly Pod only comes through the ranks and, and providing that value but also that depth where your second, third line players are skilled guys who can play a, a game of edge and put that paper and be those really, you know, strong, strong players that game in, game out, you know what to expect with them. With the Canucks right now, I feel as those players, especially further down the lineup, they don't have them right now. Give it a couple more years, and I think if they can make the right moves and get those guys like Hoaglander and Claude Colvin graduating to the NHL, then you then you then you're talking, and then you potentially have a a contender that might come back year after year. Yeah, and I think a lot of the frustration with Jim Benning from Canucks fans is the moves around the margins haven't been the best, or they haven't been analytically inclined, or they just they just haven't worked in general. So I think that's the that's like you said the thing that he has to work on is the move, move sorry the moves around the margins just because the building blocks are there but don't worry I sent an email to Gary Bettman's leaked email talking about the cap recapture penalty and how bullshit that is the Canucks are the only team to have it I think I think he got my email I think it should be fixed so it's one less thing for Jim to worry about Oh, yeah. All seeing that cavalry capture and how devastating it would be to Nashville. But if somehow, you know, next couple of years, Jay Weber decides to call it quit, the NHL doesn't follow the rule on the cavalry capture at that point, then, then I'm with you because that's, pretty, that's just total BS. Mm, yeah. You can say it on this podcast. Bullshit. It's bullshit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, like, it's, it's one of those, those are the, that's the one I have to recall. So I'm not. As somebody who covers the, 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 the you know the team and seeing uh, that you're a Canucks fan, absolutely. But right now, it's kind of that precedent setter in the sense that okay, there was no other example you could cite. But if the next one comes and it's not followed, and all of a sudden Nashville's given a break, then you have a legit, legit reason to cry foul because you can't have a double stand. You can't do it for one team and not the other, right? Mm-hmm. Like you, you know which one I circle the most more than even Shea Weber, Marion Hosa. You cannot tell me this guy played that many years in the NHL with 
without without anyone knowing he had an equipment allergy, whatever that means. That's my conspiracy theory about this whole cap recapture thing. He just conveniently retires when he's only making a million a year. Think about it. Yeah, no, that one, that one was definitely a little murky as well. And, you know, you have the health concern there, so therefore you can just kind of, you can, you can put that and say, hey, yeah, LTIR, there you go, he's done. And, and that's the justification there. Part of this is, and I don't, I'm not, a, I don't buy the, you know, Roberto Luongo, you should blame him because, you know, he could have gone out and LTIR. No, that's a player's right. If, they, if they're not hurt, they can go... Oh, no, no one, no one's blaming Luongo. Everyone's blaming Gary Batman in the league. No, no, I remember when the news broke, there was someone on Twitter that I remember a few tweets, and I was like, yeah, I'm trying to ignore these, but so this is on the league to, to keep that standard to that level. It's just, if it's a cap recap and penalty that's worth $3 million for the Canucks, and then all of a sudden Shea Weber comes out, and he ends up calling it quits, and that penalty is significantly higher, and they say, wait a second, we can't let this happen, and all of a sudden... They need they need some of uh, Francesco Aquilini's uh, friends to uh, to make him an offer he can't refuse. If you know what I mean. I think that's the way you get rid of that Louis Erickson deal. So, so one guy I don't think people have been talking about out over this whole Judd Bracket thing is Travis Green. Not that he's done anything wrong, but I was on one of my long walks yesterday, and I was just thinking about like, is Travis Green the right guy to lead this team into a playoff contending phase because here's my theory on coaches and this doesn't go for hockey this goes for pretty much any sport as well there are coaches then let let me know what you think of this there are coaches that take you from a to b and there are coaches that take you from b to c you know there are coaches who help a team develop and learn right habits but then eventually you need that b to c coach to take that team that promising team and turn them into stanley cup contenders i think of a guy like Dan Bilesma, what he did that one year with the first the first cup with with Pittsburgh, right? He came in like midway through the 2009 season and then he won the Stanley Cup. Kind of same thing with Mike Sullivan. Sometimes you need that B to C coach who knows how to who knows how to get things done and knows how to you know make a Stanley Cup contender. So is is Travis Green, in your opinion, a coach that can lead this team to a Stanley Cup, or is he more of an A to B guy, a guy who you know, has experience developing players in the AHL and can kind of do that at the NHL level as well. From what I've seen with Travis Green, I think he could be that guy based on the fact that, you got to remember, this was the first year that he was legitimately given a piece of NHL roster, right? And that's why I give him a little bit more benefit of the doubt, where you have some depth, you have some players that actually can take the puck out of their zone. For a couple of years here, 
Vancouver didn't have any defenseman that was successful at getting the puck out of their zone. So as much as you want to say, hey, that's a part on coaching, and as much as anybody will say, hey, that's on Noah Baumgartner's defensive coach, you need the horses to run. So I think Travis Green, a couple of things, yes, he's got the development angle. He throws players in the big defense and, and helps them work their way out of it. You saw that with McHugh, you saw that with Elias Patterson playing against Connor McDavid, both of those guys. That's something that he does really, really well. And I think, I know for a fact that a lot of players respect that. Not only in Vancouver, but players across the league respect that. They appreciate a guy that's been there, done that, and he understands how players feel. Now, that point A to B to B to C. We're going to find that out, I think. This year, we found out a bit where the team was punching above its weight. There were a lot of people that were saying this is not a playoff team at the beginning of the year. They're in the top three of the Pacific Division for the majority of the year. That's a credit to Travis Green. Mm-hmm. And beyond that, I, I I don't have a, you know, I think he could be that guy based on the fact that he's given that, you know, he's got the personnel now to actually make an impact. And if you add the right pieces, you know, he's respected by the players. He can tell them how it is, how it is, but at the same time, he understands the relationship of a player. So, you know, Time will tell whether he's that A to B or B to C guy. I think given, you know, what he's shown with limited resources in the last couple of years, in the next year, we're going to find out a lot about Travis Green. Of, okay, now you've got legit, really good NHL players. You've got prospects that are coming in. How creative can you be in? He's not the most, you know, flexible with his line. He, he, some would argue that he's you know, stubborn when he wants to be on that. But... The coaches have to be, you know, set in their ways to a certain extent to be successful as well. You're kind of criticized for putting their lines in the blender. Other times you're criticized for being too stubborn. Like, coaches don't usually win in Canadian markets. So, when it comes to Travis Green, I think he's handled coaching in a Canadian market pretty well with limited resources. And, as a member of the media, I can tell you, he can handle the pressure when it comes to the media in this market better than a lot of coaches in the past. And, and there's you know, that's important. If you're building a team, and if you want to shield your team from that that negativity in this market, when there's you know when there's really good things going on in Vancouver, there's no better place to play in Vancouver. You hear from players all the time, former players, but when things are sideways, next mm-hmm. one of the toughest cities and to really you know live in for a, for a lot of hockey players. So I think on ice, I'd like to see more from from Travis Green in certain aspects. But when it comes to a mix of on and off, I, I think I think he gets it. I think he gets what it needs to be successful in the NHL from a coaching point of view. And he knows how to manage that room and make sure that his guys are shielded from a lot of that negativity. So what you're saying is the big J journalist can keep on the pressure and Travis Green isn't going to crack. I don't think he is. Listen, we got to shoot our shots. We got to make sure we ask those questions. But, you know, if one press office is Travis Green, you can kind of see that he doesn't make it easy for guys to get anything out of him. And, you know, credit to all the guys that are in the post-game press conferences. And, listen, as bad as Louis Erickson's been in Vancouver, I don't think I've ever heard Travis Green ever light him up. He hasn't lit him up because he's basically saying, I'm not going to be that guy that goes into that room and gives these guys more fodder to write articles on. And, listen, as a somebody in the media, I love having things to talk about, but there's a skill in... It's not giving up <laughs> anything when it's so obvious. And, and Travis Green, 
from a media point of view, I think he's made for a Canadian market because he's got a great poker face. And you hear that a lot of times. He's a pretty decent poker player anyway, but he, he knows how to handle with the media. And that's a part of the gig. You talk to any coach or GM for that matter in American markets, whether it's Florida, Arizona, they rarely have to do media. In Canada, you do it every single game they play. You do it every single practice. You have commitment. So, and there's a skill in that. And some guys back into the pressure, others excel. And, and you have to balance that of how much do you get from the coach on the ice? Can he innovate? Can he be flexible with his players? But at the same time, if they're a Canadian organization, you have to see, all right, how is he in front of the media? Can he handle the pressure? And from that perspective, I think yeah, and hey, Travis Green, from my perspective, you know, listening to press conferences, you know, snippets when I can, he seems pretty good at the hockey cliches, but hey, you mentioned he's good at poker. Maybe next time you go to press conference, maybe sprinkle in a few poker references, you know, talk about going all in, talk about like, oh, you got a, you got a bad hand. Maybe that's the way you open Travis Green up, is you just try and sprinkle poker references and somehow. Yeah, no, not even poker. Just sprinkle in like a few, like sprinkle them in there. That's all. I think that's all you got to do. You got to do it subconsciously. I think that's the way you got to get the Travis. So speaking of your speaking of your media career, I've been. I usually ask this question to pretty much every media member I have. Like, how did you get into sports media? How did you get your start? What made you decide to pursue this as a you know a full time job? Mm-hmm. And Omni News, uh, where I worked at that time, 
the Rogers property. And Hockey Night in Canada with Guppy moved over from CBC to Austin. And that's where I got my opportunity to do on-air stuff. So I was doing a lot of stuff behind the scenes, but I got in, I got, I got an opportunity to do Hockey Night in Canada with Guppy. And since then, really, that's how I got my hit with sports was through the, that show. And, and, you know, a couple years later, uh, we had some great success with Super Viral with the Benino, Benino, Benino call and, you know, just had some really, really fun times and it's because of Hockey Night Canada and Duffy that I really got my step into English reporting, you know, working at Sportsnet 650, um, you know, doing the intermission interviews with players and, you know, this, that's kind of my end, so it's totally unconventional compared to a lot of people that go to BCIC or other journalism programs. I, I kind of started working on the on the ground floor, learning uh, similar to a lot of players. You know, sometimes they're on the rookie contract and they get thrown in the defense. That was kind of what I was doing. And, and I, I just learned the ropes from a lot of really smart and, you know, talented people and, and a lot of cool mentors in the game. And, and eventually, you know, 10 years later, I started in January 2010 in sports media just before the Olympics. And now 10 years later, I'm, uh, uh, you know, very lucky to do what I do now. Mm-hmm. And so I got a few questions spurring off that. You mentioned the Benito Benito call. Did you know at that time that it was going to go like viral the way it did? It's so weird though because we could see things like we could see you know the retweets going up during the show or after the show, but we never really had an idea of how big it was. And I guess the moment that I really realized how big it was was you know. Around the Horn is one of my favorite shows, so Tony Reality and the panelists. Oh, yeah. Um, debating things, and, and I record it every single day. I PVR it and I watch it the next day or, or later on that day. And when, you know, Harder I think my colleague in Hockey Night Canada, when his voice was on Around the Horn, when they were debating whether that was the best call and how great that call was, like that's when I was like, holy shit, like we are on ESPN, we're on Around the Horn. That was my, wow, like, originally I just thought it was a, we're, you know, we're, we've gone viral and people on the internet love it, but, okay, that's cool, but once I felt like, you know, it was being discussed on shows like that, and it was on Cameroon, it was on, you know, we had uh, an HBO video crew come out and take, you know, an interview with all of us and everything, and it was, it got to that point where I think, once we started getting noticed, uh, and that call started getting noticed, it was like, okay, this is, this is global. And, and that was, that's surreal. And I look back at that entire, you know, experience. It's just an unbelievable time because you know, we were having so much fun doing it too. It just feels, it felt like we were having, you know, it was, it was nothing was planned. It was off the cuff. We just kind of had fun with it. And looking back at it, it was such a surreal moment. I think the moment we realized it was really, really big was when we attended the Stanley Cup Raven Pittsburgh that year. And people on the plane, we connected in Chicago. We went through no direct flight from Vancouver to Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. People on the plane in Chicago were like, hey, you, you're those guys. And we're just like, sorry, what? Like, you know this? Like, you know all about They're the Benito guys. Come on, do the call. Like, legitimately, they were like, you guys don't realize how big you are in Pittsburgh. Like, you guys should be mayors of the city right now. And that kind of gave us an idea of how, how you know, crazy Pittsburgh was for Hockey Night Canada and Dubby. And then when we got there, um, it was just surreal, and, and it was looking back at it, once in a lifetime kind of event, and I know it was 
I can speak for all of the guys on the show, all the entire team that we look back at that and that was just an unbelievable moment, moment for all of us. And, and you kind of smile every single time you do a picture or that call because it, it changed your life in a, in a lot of ways. So have you ever talked to Brendan Batchelor about doing, like trying to do a similar call to that to try and get the viral, uh, try and get a viral effect for a sports at 650 once hockey comes back? Have a, he can get a viral call going. I think that would be that'd be great for Sports Center 650. Am I not wrong? Viral call like that? You're right. You're right. Is, you know, I think it's just more of like, all right, what are you feeling? And, and go with your, your gut and pick either, right? Yeah. yeah. Nobody's going to say no to viral. Yeah, absolutely. So, one more question about Hockey Night in Punjabi. Look, sure. I'm, I'm a white guy. I don't have any problem like rep- representation, especially in sports media. Like, there's, that's not an issue for me. But if you can, just maybe just to talk about like Hockey Night Punjabi and putting that together and, you know, getting some more representation out there because, hey, you know, people talk about, and NHL has that advertising campaign, hockey is for everyone. Hockey Night in Punjabi, in my opinion, is doing a pretty good job at making sure hockey is for everyone. Yeah, you know, Hockey Night Canada, Punjabi has been around for over 10 years. It was on CBC before. It's an interesting story is that, um, and my, my colleague Martin Ryan Singh is, I've told a lot of people about this, and I've learned this story from him as well, is that originally the CDC uh, was asking, you know, what, what languages could you have pilots, you know, to do pilots in for hockey night? And oddly enough, uh, Mark Crawford, who was with CDC at that time, suggested the job. Mm. When he was the coach here of the Vancouver Canucks, he said, hey, you know, there's a love of the Vancouver Canucks hockey in the South Asian community. You know, at the grocery store, pumping gas, and, and he always noticed that Jumpy speakers and South Asians would come up to him want to talk hockey. So he said, hey, there's a, there's a passionate fan base on the West Coast. Give it a try. And that's kind of where it started. And over time, it picked up momentum. Uh, like I said, 2014, 2015, it moved over to Omni, um, Omni uh, Television. And since then, you know, we've got our, you know, our own studio there as well. And, you know, it, we've added segments. And the growth is has been a really in a lot of ways exponential and part of that is you know we've gotten love from the organization um, they've given us a studio they've you know given us the resources but at the same time there's also a love of hockey in the community that's been there for generations so you know I know a lot of people in the community that have playing hockey since the 70s so there's this idea that we're taking hockey to a new audience and, and that 
part of that is true. Part of that is that mm-hmm. new immigrants to the country that may not have that experience, we're introducing them to hockey. But there's also this really, really rich history of hockey in the South Asian community. And we're now a, a bit of an avenue to kind of showcase that pride. And what I'm really proud of is, is bringing you know, the language to a younger generation, but also connect, connecting those generations to each other. Because previously, you know, grandparents could sit with their grandkids and watch hockey and really understand it. Now they have that avenue. Well, one of the things that we've done in the last two or three years, uh, Nick, is do stories on people that are, are doing, you know, in the hockey world or playing hockey where you're sharing stories about individuals that are making in the hockey. And, and we want to motivate that next generation whether it's on the ice or in in the, the broadcast booth. And I think, you know, as somebody who's connected to the show who's been lucky enough to be on the show for six years now and, and is now hosting the show, what's important to me is that that representation you talked about, that's got to continue to happen. I've been yeah. very, very lucky to be involved with Sportsnet and Sportsnet 650 and, you know, showcase that I, hey, I can do this with a job, but guess what? I can speak English. English is actually my first language. I want that story to be told by thousands of kids across Canada where you're saying, okay, this is my avenue to get into it. Hockey Night in Canada is a jumpy, is a, is an avenue that a young journalist can get a job and flex their muscle and show that they can work in Punjabi and English. Like that, that to me is, I think the longest, you know, the biggest legacy we can leave in Hockey Night in Canada, Punjabi. So when I'm said, you know, I'm done on Hockey Night in Canada, Punjabi, when I'm done in broadcasting, I can look back with my colleagues and say, we made a difference in, in making, you know, a bit of representation in, in sport, but also media. So I'm with you, you know, you're always looking for, for young journalists, uh, young, you know, sports reporters that want to get experience because part of it is that we want to showcase these stories as well. It's not about us, it's about the language, it's about hockey. That's the, the most important thing. I didn't know, okay, that's a cool story about Mark. I didn't know Mark Crawford was the guy who helped get Hockey Night and Punjabi on the air. That's awesome. Oh, no, there's been a lot of people, and, you know, that goes to, Mark was one of the originals, but, you know, to this day, one of my, you know, one of our good friends, Jeff Merrick, huge, huge supporter of the show, loves Jeff, um, and 31 Thoughts is, is, you know, a great podcast out there as well, and everybody listens. Hey, 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 no, no, no free promos on the show. I don't want you popping the tires of any other podcast. Okay, all right, fair enough. <laughs> but, you know, Jeff, an awesome guy. Ellie Friedman is a huge supporter of the show. Uh, the list goes on. There's just, you know, Kelly Rudy, another person that somebody, you know, even even people that are not employed by not hockey in Canada, but there's a lot of Canadians out there that I think it's important, right, um, that you support all communities. And, and you know, if there's a if there's a show that comes up tomorrow, um, it doesn't matter. It could be you know any podcast, your podcast. If people do good work, I think celebrating them. Is, is important, and it doesn't matter what side you're on. Uh, there's a lot of good people, uh, you know, in, in the sports broadcasting industry, and that's why I think you know having as many podcasts out there, having having these conversations on podcasts is important because we're all just uh, we're that's what sports is, right? You want to entertain, you want to inform, and that's kind of what Hockey Night Canada Punjabi is too. We do it in our our you know, our, our mother tongue of Punjabi, but my job is to inform the viewer, but also entertain them as well. And, Absolutely, man. So I've got one more question, and then we're going to play a bit of a game. So I was, I was doing my research for the show, and the research for the show usually is me Googling you know, the, the guest name and just scrolling through the first page of Google. 
and I came across a clip of you talking about how boo, like debating booze as a gift. Now, am I missing some sort of social faux pas here that you're not allowed to give booze as a gift? Because I just gave my mom for Mother's Day a bottle of white wine. Was I not supposed to do that? Am I missing out on something here? No, no, you're on the right here. Okay, good. I think what you're referencing is that uh, it was the show around Christmas. Yeah, it was with Perry Salkowski. Exactly, and we're talking about, okay, you know, Secret Santa at that point, we uh, just launched for Test 650, and we weren't sure of, you know, we didn't know too much about some of the people that we worked with, so what, you know, what do you look for when you're, you're giving a gift to somebody that you don't really know? Ooh, like, you can't go wrong. No. I would take that if, uh, from somebody that knows me really well, right? Like, if you know what I enjoy with alcohol, please give me alcohol. I'd rather have that than a sweater, but, um, no. I think as long as a person drinks, alcohol is the surefire way to somebody's heart because you know they're pretty used to it. As long as they drink. So that gift of white wine for for your mom, I approve of it. I approve of it and I think you know, alcohol I I I'm a bit of alcohol, you know Alcohol, alcohol. I thought you were about to say alcoholic. I was like, whoa. <laughs> right connoisseur. You're an alcohol connoisseur. Connoisseur would use that as well. Uh, because I, anytime I travel, I like trying to, you know, whether it's wine or like a scotch or like beers from that area. So, you know, the ideal gift for me is alcohol. Wait, what do you, what's your go-to drink? What are you, what are you sipping after this? See, you're a lot classier than me. Like, is Growers a spirit? I like Growers. I like, it's cheap. It comes comes in two liter bottles. Growers, uh, I, I used to drink that in my younger days, my earlier days. How old are you, bud? I'm I'm 26. Okay, yeah. So you know, maybe in my I would say in my like early 20s, uh, I Growers was on the list. Oh yeah, it's the best deal. It's the best deal of the BCL. It's seven dollars for two liters. It's value, man. It's value. Uh, but yeah, no, I've gone I've gone the other direction. My palate is more. Uh, Okay. Looking forward to getting older and starting to drink scotch then. Yeah, exactly. So, listening to Reach Deep, you play. You have the game password. I'm going to play a different game. It's called Overrated or Underrated. Now, listening to the show, would you say? Would it, is it safe to say you're a bit of a hip hop old head? You like like '90s hip hop? Definitely. Definitely. Uh, Okay, yeah, it's de- definitely old head. So what I want to play is overrated or underrated hip hop artists. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to name an artist, and you have to say if he's overrated or underrated. Okay, ready? Go. All right, Biggie. Sorry, sorry, that was Biggie. Yeah, overrated or underrated? I would be underrated. Okay, okay. I know a lot of people. You know, he's got a lot of respect in the Listen to his song and you know just the lyricism, the flow. To me, he's uh, the top, one of the top two rappers of all time. Like I think the way he spits 
How about Nas? Overrated or underrated? Oh, yeah. I saw I saw I saw Nas live for the twentieth anniversary show of that back in the day. Yeah, just party songs all the time. Yeah, it was a club music back in the day. It was really good, uh, you know, insightful stuff. And to me, that's why he's underrated, because he didn't go in that direction and make, make you know, bangers. Yeah, as the kids would call them, bangers. What's that? As the kids would call them, bangers. Yeah, bangers, man. Honestly, I, I, I got love for now, too. So you're two for two on this. I think he's underrated. Okay, Travis Scott. Overrated. Oh. I know it was a young Come on. Alright, okay, next artist, Tupac. Okay, you're a bit, you're a bit for fan of the more like insightful Tupac. Like, in a lot of ways, unstable. Like, all eyes on me and, and hit 
up and all that was, you know, there's a range of the Tupac, right? And that kind of represents who we are as people as well. We're not one thing. We, you know, we're all different. And that's why I like Tupac because he, he, there was different chapters in his career. And, and I'll never say he's under, uh, overrated. I, see, I can tell you thought a lot about this. Just anyone listening, I did not tell Randy at all before we started recording that we were going to play this game. I sprung it on him. I tried to surprise him. <laughs> but you, you thought a lot about this. I'm a big, I'm a hip-hop, especially that era. Is, uh, I love it, man. Like, I, I'll go listen to the old classics and the thought process of, of artists, but also, you know, when it comes to sports as well. That's something, like I mentioned earlier, I'm a bit of a historian when it comes to that, and I love it. learning about the stories behind the people. And then, you know, we talk about, you know, the UFC 249 was this past weekend, and, and whether it's, you know, I'm a big boxing guy. I love hearing about and I love reading about fighters from like 16 years ago because I, I would love to know what makes a fighter or an athlete great. So I'm a bit of a geek when it comes to these backstories. Mm-hmm. So my next artist, Drake, overrated or underrated? I think I know what you're going to say. And this isn't a generational thing. Um, I, I enjoy listening to some of his songs, but based on... You get to a certain level of hype with an individual... Um, that they're always overrated. And I find it's uh, great. He's a damn good artist, and he's going to come up with like some really good songs. I got, I got Drake on my, uh, you know, iPhone as well. So I'm not saying I don't listen to his stuff, but for his impact on hip hop um, and rap, like he's really, really good. But he's overrated. There's no question. <laughs> when you're that big, when you're that big, and you know, your your societal impact is is significant. Like he's not to me, he's not one of the greatest artists ever. So he's definitely given that that limelight, he's given that attention. But I would say he's overrated. But I still got love for you know what he does, and and I respect that. But no, definitely overrated. My book. Kyle Bowen is listening to that and just smoke's coming out of his ears right now. He can't he can't believe what you're saying about Drake, man. Okay, I got a couple. I like I like his music, but no, there's there's a level of you know there's a level of overratedness, and, and part of that is also the state of Hip-hop and rap, like, and I'm going to sound like it's a little bit here, though, is that when rap and hip-hop went top 40, which is essentially what it is, pop music now, um, and I believe Diddy for this, uh, kind of dumped it down, and that's why I overrated it, that to me the music doesn't have as much meaning as it did in the early, in the early 2000s, where, and, and yeah, Drake is a part of that, right? So, I love a lot of his songs, don't get me wrong, I got Drake on my phone, you, you said you just you just pretty much pulled off like I like hip hop before it was cool. That was like the move you just pulled. Oh, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm I'm totally uh this is uh, I used to love her uh comments. That comment song. Yeah. I'm totally flexing that right now. Yeah. <laughs> so okay, a couple more. Outcast, overrated, underrated. Um oh man. See I see I see outcast in two two halves. Their first part of their career, um, so like 
I'm going to go underrated on this because I don't think people appreciate uh, Andre 3000 as, as an unbelievable rapper. Like, you see them as kind of a, a funky, quirky group, but the Navy is a top 10, I think top 15 rapper. Oh, he's easy. He's easily top 10. Easily top 10, in my opinion. There's a lot of rappers I have in my top 10 that are, a lot of people might not have. So, like, I have Guru from Dangstar in there. I have Big L in my top 10. So, that's why I would say top 10 to 15 for me. But, yeah, the Andre 2000 is legitimately left on way, way too much in hip hop. So, I'm going to say underrated because those original, you know, playing ball and, like, those early songs. You look back at, and you look back to those, and I, you know, even watching Hip Hop Evolution, I don't know if you had a chance to Yeah, watch. yeah, on Netflix, yeah. It totally educates a lot of people, even that lived through that time, of how, you know, on a bunch of acts that maybe you didn't necessarily even pay attention to when I was younger, like, I was passing it, my, my, um, kind of my listening preference until, until they went commercial, but their early stuff was unbelievable as well, so, that's why I think that era, especially of, of Outcast is totally underrated because there's that segment of the population that probably doesn't even know that era existed. That's how, that's how good they were. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So here's an art. Yeah, I'm switching it up. This is not a hip hop artist. Prince, overrated or underrated? Mm, oh, man. Dude, anytime somebody's uh, passed on it, I can't say. Okay, here's where I'll say it. Like, to me, overrated because I don't necessarily like that style of music. That's my justification on it. It's like, what he can do with the guitar and the way he can rock an audience. But, like, that's just not my cup of tea. So, I know people are going to listen and say, well, how can you say that about Purple Rain? I just don't, it's just not my music. So, for that reason, if you're asking for an answer, I will say overrated. You're pretty much spitting on the grave of Prince right now by saying that. I'm sorry, I'm giving you an honest answer. I would say Prince is probably underrated just based on, like, the deep cuts from his album. Oh, okay. A lot of friends growing up. That's why I was always at that argument. But I'm, uh, yeah, no, I, I feel bad for saying it, but it's just not my style of music, so therefore I'm going to stay over it. Okay. I'm probably, I'm probably going to get ripped to shreds for it. But. Oh, no, we're clipping that for sure and with the headline. <laughs> that, that's how we're going to get the get the clicks. Randy Janda hates Prince. No, it didn't say hit. Or it didn't say hit. Uh, hate, sorry. I well, it, well it's, it's implied. It's implied. <laughs> okay, so this is the last one I promise. Modern, more modern hip hop artist, The Baby. Overrated and underrated. Well, man. Okay, uh, I'll be honest. Don't even care. <laughs> okay. Don't even care. Like, I, the baby doesn't even register on my on my. Ooh, that, that might hurt. That 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 might hurt more than overrated or underrated. Just I don't care about this person's existence. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. You know what? That's a good place to end the game, Randy. Thank you so much for doing this, and hopefully we can have you on again sometime. Awesome, man. Thank you. It was awesome. Uh, you know, chatting through this. Uh, I thought it was going to be a, a you know, twenty-minute, half hour, but it was blew by so. Oh yeah, I should. I should probably. I should have probably informed you a bit better, but uh, maybe next time. No, it's all good, man. Um, we're all kind of chilling in quarantine. Got nothing else to do anyway. It was an awesome chat. Uh, you know, keep up the great work.